Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. It has been said that the history of the church has been watered and fertilized by the blood of the saints. Persecution is just part of Christianity. Jesus himself said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. If everybody is speaking well of you, and if you've never suffered any persecution in this life, you're probably doing your Christianity wrong. Because Jesus said, they hated me without a cause, they're going to hate you. Because you are a representative of Christ here on planet Earth, you're going to be like a red neon sign for people who don't want to think about things like eternity or judgment or Christianity. The church that we're going to look at today, the church at Smyrna, was a church that was noted for its persecution. Last week I said to you that each of these churches represent a type of church so that we can learn what Jesus approved of within his church and what he disapproved of. So you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. And today we will talk about the church at Smyrna. Let me give you a little bit of history of the city of Smyrna that will help you understand the words that Jesus uses when speaking to them. First off, do you know the word Smyrna? Do you know what that word even means? I mean, you all live in the town of Smyrna or at least are gathered here in a church in Smyrna, Tennessee. Do you know what the word Smyrna means? It is the Greek word for myrrh. Throughout the Old Testament, we read about myrrh. Myrrh is a, uh, an expensive ointment, but it is also used primarily as a burial ointment, mostly because one of its major properties is the fact that it retards the putrefaction of flesh, and so the embalming that was done in Egypt, and consequently the embalming that was done in Judah, ancient Jerusalem, they used myrrh in order to embalm the bodies. We are just a few weeks away from the Christmas season here, and so you're going to hear a lot in the weeks to come over the radio and on the TV, you're going to hear the Christmas story told over and over and over again. And it's really easy to ignore the fact that the wise men brought gold and frankincense and myrrh, the Bible tells us. So to celebrate the birth of Christ, they brought an embalming ointment, prefiguring the death that was the reason for his coming to earth in the first place. Because there are no mistakes in God's economy. Also, by the way, Tom, if you would, look up Mark 15.23 quickly. 
because myrrh was also used as an analgesic. When Jesus was on the cross, they tried to get him to take a mixture that contained myrrh just to lessen the amount of pain and agony that he was going through. He refused to take anything that would lessen the pain that he was feeling as he was paying our sin debt. Tom, would you read Mark 15, 23 there? And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Glad you stood up for those, what, eight, nine words. But, yeah. But. Since about 1830, if you look on a current map of Turkey and you're trying to figure out where ancient Smyrna would have been, you'll find the town of Izmir, Turkey. That is Smyrna, but Smyrna itself reaches way back into antiquity. In fact, it was written about the earliest writing that we have about Smyrna dates back to the 11th century BC. Has anybody heard of Mimnermus? Have you read any of the poetry of Mimnermus? He actually lived in Smyrna or perhaps in a sister city of Smyrna, which was called Colophon. And he writes lamenting about the degeneracy of the citizens of Smyrna back in his day. That gives you some idea of the general attitude and character of the city. After a while, the Lydians came and destroyed the city. So if you look at the history of Smyrna, it was once a great city. It was once a significant city because it is right there on the Aegean Sea. And so it is a port city. Like Ephesus, it had a lot of trade. And in fact, it became a really magnificent city, but it couldn't hold off the advancements of the Lydian army, and they finally fell to the Lydians. The king of Lydia, who lived from 609 to 560, captured and demolished Smyrna. According to Theognis, anybody know the Greek poet Theognis? I figure if you don't know Mimnermus, you're not likely to know Theognis. But he lived around 500 B.C. He wrote that it was pride that destroyed Smyrna. So this is a city that is given over to debauchery. This is a city that was once so corrupt that God saw to it that it was completely destroyed. It was completely wiped out. But then a new city rose. And do you know who was chiefly responsible for the new city? Alexander the Great. There's a name you know. It was Alexander the Great who decided that that was a good port, and so it needed to be rebuilt as a city. But this time it was built on Greco-Roman architecture, and as a consequence, had lots of temples. In fact, the city was so well-designed by Alexander and a couple of his generals later after Alexander died, both Antigonus and Lysimachus both picked up the work that Alexander had begun. And they laid out the whole city geometrically. Everything was at right angles. But around the outside of the city, 
there were temples laid at even proportions from each other so that if you were looking at the city from a distance, the city looked like a crown. And because of the amount of import and export, it became a very wealthy city. In fact, historians have said that the streets of the city were all broad and paved, all laid out at right angles, and the streets were all named after their temples. The main street, which was known as the Street of Gold, the Golden Street, actually began at the Temple of Zeus and then cut through the city from east to west. It also boasted, Smyrna did, one of the largest agoras in the ancient world. Do you remember the word agora? Because we've talked about it before. When we were talking about Paul in Athens, I introduced you to agoras, where we get the word agoraphobia. The agora is the marketplace. If you're afraid of being outdoors among people out in the marketplace, then you're agoraphobic. They had a two-story agora. There were 28 businesses in the agora, and they all face north. That's how technical Smyrna was about making sure that everything in it was laid out exactly according to the grid that they had laid out. The second floor of the market contained rows of columns, and there were galleries in between the rows of columns which made that agora the largest marketplace in the ancient world. That's how grand the city of Smyrna was. At the end of the Greek Hellenistic period, around 197 BC, the city itself decided to cut its ties with the king of Pergamum. Now, next week, we're going to talk about Pergamus and Pergamum. But Smyrna decided in all their wealth and all their pomp that they were going to cut their ties with the king of Pergamum and then go to Rome. Up until then, Rome and Smyrna didn't have any political ties. So Smyrna, to encourage Rome to include them in the larger Roman society, began what is known as the Cult of Rome And in their building of temples and gods, they created a new goddess named Roma. They deified Rome, and they decided that the whole of Rome was ruled over by this goddess Roma. So that was enough to get Rome to say, yeah, okay, we'll protect you, we'll look after you. In 133 B.C., So we're talking about 133 years before Jesus is born, roughly. The last king, whose name was Attalus III, died without an heir. And so his will confirmed the entire Mideast kingdom, including Smyrna, to the Romans. And so then the Romans organized it into the Roman province of Asia, and they made Pergamum its capital, And Smyrna became the major seaport for the whole rest of the Middle East there. In fact, for a while, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum competed to be what was considered the chief city. So in order to advance their cause, Smyrna agreed with Rome that Caesar was a god. 
in Rome. Caesar worship had already been developed. And as a consequence, they carved a marble statue of the Caesar in the city that was used for burning incense to Caesar. Every citizen was called on to publicly worship and publicly confess their allegiance to Caesar, and they had to do it every single year. In fact, they made it a capital offense not to do that. You could lose your life if you didn't at least once a year take your incense to Caesar as a god and burn incense in a show of worship to the Caesar. Well, of course, Christians aren't going to be able to do that. But everybody else in Smyrna agreed because they could be killed if they didn't do it. And when you burned your incense to Caesar, you received a certificate of your annual emperor worship. And you had to carry that with you at all times because without it, you couldn't buy, sell, or trade. They called it the vaccine passport. (laughs) Never mind. In other words, all I'm trying to tell you is some of the stuff that's going on in the world right now that seems so peculiar to us, oh, it's been around a long time. But you can imagine for the Christians that are there in Smyrna, you can imagine the crisis of conscience they're having when they're being told by the Smyrnian society and by Rome itself that they have to worship Caesar and that they have to burn their incense to Caesar and that they have to carry a certificate that says that they recognize Caesar as God. And meanwhile, their Christian faith has told them there is no God but Yahweh. I mean, it's the first of the commandments. You can't get away from it. God himself says, you'll have no other gods before me. That's a commandment. And so if you're a Christian who's following after Jesus Christ in worship of Yahweh, what are you going to do when the society tells you that it's time to worship Caesar or die? What are you going to do? Well, the Christians there in Smyrna refused to do that. As a consequence, they were not allowed to buy, sell, or trade. And don't forget that Smyrna has the largest marketplace in the Middle East there. And they can't participate in it. As a consequence, the church at Smyrna becomes, in the midst of all this majesty, in the midst of all this power and grandeur, in the midst of this city that is overwhelmingly wealthy, the church is impoverished. The church is poor because they will not worship Caesar and they will not abandon the faith of Jesus Christ. Now you can start to get a feeling for why the letter to the church at Smyrna is the only letter you're going to read in the book of Revelation that has no condemnations, no corrections. Rather, Jesus just looks at them in the midst of their suffering, looks at them in the midst of how often they are being persecuted and the many ways they're being persecuted, and encourages them 
And the first encouragement he brings up to them is, I was dead and I'm alive. Think what that means to Christians who are living under this kind of persecution. It's Jesus saying, don't love your life because your life is passing. Instead, recognize that this life is going to pass with its persecutions and its troubles. We just sang, when we see Christ in glory, that all the toils of life are going to be repaid. But then the one who saves us, the one who promises us his redemption and his blood, that he's made it okay with God again, is the very one who can say, I was dead, and look at me, I'm alive again. Now, some commentators try to say what Jesus was doing there was he was looking at Smyrna's history and saying, you know, you as a city have been destroyed several times. You've been dead. You've been wiped out. But then you've come back even grander. You've come back and been even more majestic. You've come back and become the chief city here among many wonderful cities. I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at. I think Jesus was saying, you're going to suffer this persecution, and if the persecution kills you, look at me. Think about how much persecution I went through. Think about the persecution I endured on your sake that brought me all the way to actual death, and I'm alive again. And that's a promise, not only to the church at Smyrna, but to everyone who follows hard after him, that this life, for all its craziness, this life, for all its persecution, this life that is so godless, this world that is under the power of the prince of the power of the air, and that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and, and the rulers of the darkness of this world. But one day, whether we die under persecution or whether we die ultimately of natural causes, death, as much an enemy as it is, death is not the end. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, you're going to die and you're going to live again. And that gives you the hope. That gives you the confidence. That gives you the surety that whatever happens to you here, you're going to be okay eternally. Because the one who is your shepherd, the one who is your captain, the one who is leading you to heaven has already been here, has already endured, has already gone through the persecution, unlike persecution that most of us will ever know. Very few of us are going to have the skin whipped off our back before we're nailed to a cross. He suffered incredible persecution. What I can tell you, what I can guarantee you is because Paul says that we are not appointed to wrath, the persecution we're never going to know is the wrath of God. And Jesus endured that and says to the people at Smyrna, I'm alive again. That's remarkable. That's so wonderful. That's so reassuring. Jesus said, don't fear men who can only kill the body. Fear God. Reverence God who can kill the body and the soul. He can put them both into hell eternally. He's your eternal judge. He's the one you need to worry about. Don't be worried about what men can do to you. You know the worst thing a man can do to you if you're a Christian 
is he'll kill you and send you home. You win. So, there's another name at Smyrna that I need to mention before we go on. One of the first bishops of Smyrna was a guy that you've heard me mention a few times whose name is Polycarp. The reason Polycarp is so important to church history is that he studied at the feet of the Apostle John. He heard the Apostle John teach. He learned Christianity from the Apostle John. Then he had a student by the name of Arrhenius. And it is through Arrhenius, quoting Polycarp, that we know that John was on the Isle of Patmos during the reign of Domitian. And so that is eyewitness testimony. This same Polycarp was actually martyred there in Smyrna. That happened somewhere around A.D. 153 to 155. Do you know why he was ultimately killed and burned at the stake? Because he refused to call Caesar Lord. That's how serious they were about this pinch of incense you had to use to worship Caesar. And yet this Polycarp, when he was told to deny his faith, here's the famous phrase, perhaps not as famous as Martin Luther's Here I Stand speech, But he said, just before he died, for 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And he was willing to die on that declaration. A pagan mob assaulted him, dragged him into the great athletic stadium that there was there in Smyrna. Smyrna was very into their Olympiads. They were very into setting up races and throwing things and people competing and wrestling. And in their pursuit, that Greek pursuit of the perfect man, they were very committed to their Olympiads. And so they built this magnificent stadium. And that's where they burned Polycarp so that everybody could see what happens to Christians who don't conform. So as I said, it's Arrhenius who then as a boy, heard Polycarp. Polycarp was taught by John, and Arrhenius was probably also a native of Smyrna. In the late second century, Arrhenius wrote this, and it's significant. He said, Polycarp also was not only instructed by apostles and conversed with many who had actually seen Christ, but was also, by apostles in Asia, appointed bishop of the church at Smyrna. He always taught the things which he had learned from the apostles and which the church has handed down and which alone are true. To these things all of the Asiatic churches testify, as do also the men who have succeeded Polycarp. So talk about having a succession of teachers in your city, in your church. Talk about having a pedigree. I mean, right from the Apostle John to Polycarp to Arrhenius. And here's Arrhenius saying, and Polycarp only taught those things that he learned directly from the apostles. You just don't get 
a much better source for your teaching than that. Tertullian wrote in 200 AD, he was writing about the heresies that were developing in the Eastern world and in the church, and he wrote, anyhow, the heresies are at best novelties, and they have no continuity with the teaching of Christ. Perhaps some heretics may claim apostolic antiquity. To them we reply, let them publish the origin of their churches and unroll their catalog of their bishops till now from the apostles or from some bishop appointed by the apostles as the Smyrnians count from Polycarp and John and the Romans count from Clement and Peter. Let heretics invent something to match that. I kind of like Tertullian's, oh yeah, take that. What he's saying here is Smyrna actually has apostolic succession right from John through Polycarp. We can name names and trace it right back to the apostles. Which of you heretics can do that? Which of you false churches can do that? So that takes us to Revelation 2, starting at verse 1. You have some sense of who Smyrna was now? Mm -hmm. You have some sense of why the church there was persecuted? Mm -hmm. You have some sense of how poor, how impoverished they'd become? The more you understand about all of that, the more you understand about the persecution, the more you understand about the Caesar worship, the more you're going to understand what Jesus said to the church at Smyrna. I'll read verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, the whole of the letter to Smyrna, and then we'll start digging into the details. To the messenger of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty though you are rich. And I know the slander by those who say they are Jews, and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. To the angel or the messenger of the church at Smyrna write, the first and last who was dead and who has come to life, says this. In that simple phrase, in Jesus saying, I'm the one who is the first and the last. I am the eternal one. I am before everything. I am after everything. But I am also the one who, despite having that kind of eternality, I also suffered death, physical death, mortal death. That's why in a moment he can say, be faithful till death. Because look at me, I was dead, and I'm alive again. So that's got to be a tremendous amount of comfort 
to those people who were being killed, to those people who were being persecuted, knowing that their Lord, knowing that the captain of their salvation suffered death and knows what it is to suffer and knows what it is to be persecuted, but that he has also conquered death. And there's no other way to conquer death. There's no other way to be confident on your way to the grave. Only if you know that Jesus Christ is going to raise you and the proof that he's going to raise you is that God raised him. The fact that he lives means we're going to live. The fact that he has overcome death and is going to conquer death for the enemy that it is gives us a tremendous amount of confidence. I have often said to people, you know, I'm not afraid of death. I look forward to going home. So I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying. That can get ugly. I've seen too much of death in my life, and I've seen too much of the process of death, and I know the toll it can take on people and on their loved ones. Death is ugly, but it's meant to be because it is an enemy of everything living. And Jesus says, don't worry about death. I conquered death. I got up from the grave, and I'm the one who's speaking to you right now. That had to be a tremendous comfort to those who were facing death for not worshiping Caesar. And by the way, as I said when I began this morning, Christianity by its very nature always begets persecution. We have a 2,000-year history to look back on now. 2,000 years of Christianity on planet Earth. And as you read through the history of the church and the history of the world, persecution is just one of the hallmarks of Christianity. If you are, in fact, representing Christ here on planet Earth, if you are representing the ever-living one, the ever-dying ones are going to hate you. They're not going to like the fact that you remind them of the judgment to come. And yet Jesus says, I was dead, and I'm alive again. I've come back to life And this is what I say to you. This is the authority that I have for you. Notice that Jesus does not say, I will remove the persecution. Would have been nice if he had said that. Would have been nice if he said, yeah, I'm Lord, I'm Master, and you don't have to worry about the persecution. In fact, I'm going to make sure that you have nothing but a comfortable life from now on. That's what the name and claim it folks would like to tell us. And if you come to Jesus, your life's going to get better. Jesus didn't say that. In fact, Peter wrote in 1 Peter, if you want to keep your finger there in Revelation and turn back just a couple of books, you'll find 1 Peter. I'm going to read a pretty significant section of it where Peter says that part of Christianity is the persecution that goes with it. It's right at the beginning. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, right at the beginning of his letter. I'm going to start reading at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter starts right off with, look at Jesus. He rose from the dead. Therefore, our hope is not a dead hope. The hope, the anticipation, the looking forward that we have is alive and vital and living because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And it is God himself who out of the abundance of his great mercy caused us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, one that will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. That's the Christian life. As we're living here on planet Earth, it is necessary that we go through these various trials, these various difficulties, these persecutions. But notice what Peter says about it. He doesn't say these are random occurrences. He says there's purpose to the persecution that you're living through. Because God, who is absolutely sovereign, even knows about the persecution you're going through. And the same way that he has laid up an inheritance in heaven for you, he has also laid up a life on earth here for you. And he has designed certain difficulties and trials of your faith on purpose. And because it's purposeful, he's going to protect you and get you through it. Here's how Peter puts it. You are going to greatly rejoice, even during your trials, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, and gold perishes. But gold tried, gold tested in the fire. That's how you get pure gold. You have to get rid of the dross. You have to get rid of the impurities. And the best way to do that is by fire. And so Peter says that this testing of your faith as you go through the trials, tribulations, persecutions here on planet Earth is God refining you, is God forming you into the person you're going to become between here and casting off this mortal body. And being raised up again spotless and unblemished, God is trying your faith in order to secure your faith, in order to strengthen your faith. Here, I'll make it easy on you. When do you go cry out to God? When everything's good or when everything's bad? When it's bad. When everything's going great, that's not when you're calling out to God. You might drop by and say thank you. But you're not crying to God to help you or save you. But let it go bad. Let it go difficult. Let life go hard on you. When you got nowhere else to go and no one else to plead to, you are running to God, pleading to God, praying to God, sacrificing to God. And look, if I can figure that out, God can figure that out. The best way to draw you to himself is to put persecution in your life. 
for the trial of your faith, which Peter says is like gold tried in the fire so that your faith is perfected through the difficulties that you live through. In other words, persecution is just part of the Christian life. I'm going to read starting at verse 6 again here, 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, so that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. What are we reading? The apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. And at the unveiling of Jesus Christ, you're going to give him glory and honor and praise. Why? Because God, who is sovereign, made sure that you had the right amount of trials and difficulties in your life to perfect your faith so that when Christ returns, Christ gets the glory, honor, and praise that he deserves. This is a really sovereign God working out a really sovereign plan. And you're right in the middle of what God is doing with you in your life, and never more so than when you're going through trials. But then look at the end of it. And though you have not seen him. Anybody here seen Jesus lately? Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Why? Why do you love him? Because the trials of your faith have perfected your faith so that you will praise and worship and glorify and honor him and so that you will learn to love him as you are slowly and systematically being removed from the things of this world. Because the things of this world hate God and hate Christ. And that's the condition that he found you in when he saved you, when he called you to himself. And his process of removing you from the world and drawing you to himself so that you would love him is to take you through the trials and the difficulties of this life until you reach the point that I have reached where there's nothing left for this world to offer me that would make me want to stay here. Anybody else feeling that? <laughs> though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. So the process of the salvation of your soul is trying your faith in the fire. And through the perfecting of your faith, you grow to love him so that when he comes back at his apocalypsis, at the unveiling of Christ, you're going to praise and glory and honor him because that's what God has been teaching you through the course of your life and the difficulties that you've had to endure. That's a God who knows what he's doing. In Matthew 5, Jesus says essentially the same thing. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward in heaven is great. Because in this same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it has always been the case that the world has hated godly people. Old Testament or new, it has always been the case that this decrepit fallen world has hated holy things. But God who is still active, God who is still sovereign, God who is still on his throne is still saving people, is still reaching down and choosing his own, bringing his own to himself. And as he's in the process of doing that, the world recognizing that you're not like the world anymore. Listen, Jesus himself said that. He said, you're in the world, but not of the world because I've chosen you out of the world. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But the world hates you because you're not of the world. It's Jesus talking. So what should our expectation be? Our expectation should be troubles coming, persecutions coming, difficulties in life are coming. But if we know that every one of those difficulties only got to us because this is what God sovereignly planned for us, it will help us to endure the persecution. Now, knowing all that, look at how rich it is when Jesus says, I know your tribulation. That's what he tells the church in Smyrna. Not only are you going through difficulty and hardship, but I know what you're going through. I understand it. I designed it. This is my process for you. You're not of this world. And then he says, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. And then he adds, but you're rich. In what way can it be said of the church at Smyrna, but you're rich? I mean, they're living in the midst of a very wealthy city. That's why I went through all of that history and background about Smyrna. So you could get some sense of the contrast between the church and its poverty Surrounded by this city that's so wealthy, think about how attractive that had to be every single day. You walk outside your door and there's the biggest agora. You you walk out and you see all of that wealth and you see all of that money. You see all that marble. You see all that fame. You see all that power. And if you're human, that's attractive to you. You start wanting a piece of that. You start thinking this isn't fair. I should be getting all this. And yet, because of their love of Christ, they get none of it. And Jesus says, I know. I know you're poor, but you're rich. Change of mind, change of perspective. The promise that the Bible makes us is that we are going to be joint heirs with Christ. Can you imagine what God could dream up if he wanted to dream up the best gift there ever was in order to honor and glorify his son, what could God come up with? And you're told you're going to be joint heir with what he inherits. Oh, you're rich. You're rich, even though you may be poor in this lifetime, even though you may have difficulties in this lifetime, even though the world may persecute you in this lifetime. Jesus says, I know, I know, and you're rich. Now, he knows what's coming. 
He knows what your future is. In fact, he's the one who said, I go to prepare a place for you. So that where I am, you may also be in my father's house. There are many dwelling places. So he's preparing the place that he's already seen. He talked about heaven like it was his living room. I mean, he knows what's going on in heaven. He knows the splendor to come, and he knows there's nothing on earth that can begin to touch it. Nothing can match it. And so he can say to you, the same way he said to the church at Smyrna, I know what you're going through. I know your difficulty. I know your poverty. Oh, but I also know how rich you are. He's already seen it. He's already experienced it. He's already made it. He's already created it. We're just waiting to get there and be part of it. The second half of verse 9 says, And I know the slander by those who say they are Jews, but they are not. But they are, boy, here's a condemnatory statement, they are the synagogue of Satan. The completion of Judaism, the point of Judaism, is Christ. He is the Jewish Messiah. Those Jews who rather than recognize and worship Jesus as Savior are the Jews who Jesus used his most condemnatory language for. They're the ones that he called whitewashed sepulchers. They're the ones who he said, you look good and clean on the outside and on the inside you're all uncleanness and dead men's bones. In fact, in John 8, verse 44, talking to the Jews that were opposing him, Jesus said, you are of your father the devil, not of your father God. They're the ones that are in the temple doing all the stuff, all the religious ceremonies designed to worship God. They are the ones who would say, God is our father. He says, you're of your father the devil. And the desires of your father the devil That's what you want to do. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. That's right. He was responsible for the death of Adam and Eve. From the very beginning, he was always a cunning murderer. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own The NASB adds the word resources. What Jesus said is, when he's speaking, he's speaking his own. His own language, his own thoughts, his own character. He's speaking lies because he's a liar. Because he's a liar and he is the father of lies. So then you can see, when Jesus says this to the Jews, you're of your father the devil. You can see why Jesus would say that there are some Jews even there in Smyrna who claim to be Jews, but they're actually a synagogue of Satan. Jesus pointed them out as being satanic even when he was on the planet. And there is this division within Judaism that even Paul writes about in the Roman letter. In chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, But he is actually a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter of the law. 
And his praise is not from people, but from God. So Paul himself divided Judaism between those who saw in Christ the purpose of Judaism, the completion of Judaism. He was the one who cast the shadow throughout the whole Old Testament. And then there were those who had all the outward trappings of religion. There were the ones who were doing all the religious stuff in the temple, but they hadn't had that change of heart. They hadn't had that inward circumcision from God who changed them from within. Therefore, Jesus himself in John, Jesus himself here in Revelation, could say these Jews are the synagogue of Satan. Now, by the way, how do you think the Jews reading this letter would have reacted to that? They wouldn't have reacted well to it. That would have raised the level of persecution in Smyrna. Not only are they being persecuted by the Romans for not worshiping Caesar, but part of, a substantial part of the persecution in Smyrna came from the Jews who didn't want this Christianity, certainly not this kind of Christianity, to get a foothold in Smyrna. And so Jesus himself says, I know. And I know the Jews who claim to be Jews who are not Jews. And I know that they're just children of the devil, a synagogue of Satan. Matthew 23, 15, listen to Jesus speaking. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Okay, that would be Jews, Jewish leaders. Woe to you. Why are they under this woe from Jesus? You're hypocrites. Because you travel around on sea and on land to make one convert, one proselyte. And when you make one, when you have converted someone to your way of thinking, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are. Meek and mild Jesus just out there making friends and influencing people. Out there condemning people, necessarily Jewish leaders, who are of the synagogue of Satan. Verse 10 of Revelation 2. So then do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So that you'll be tried and tested. Remember what we just read out of Peter. This is for the purpose of instruction and building up your faith. You're going to be tried and tested. And you'll have tribulation for 10 days. As I mentioned earlier, Polycarp was actually persecuted and killed, martyred in the stadium there in Smyrna. Jesus said, that's what's coming. Now after Jesus says... It's coming. The persecution is coming. Is it any surprise then that the persecution came? No. I mean, if Jesus is telling the church, persecution, you're going to be persecuted. As long as you're in this world, you're going to have difficulty. Well, then why is it any surprise to us when things go bad? We ought to be seeing it coming and say, yeah, yeah, this is proof of our faith. This is why we're going through this, to build up our faith so that we're going to have more confidence in Christ and less confidence in our flesh. Because our flesh is going to do nothing and then lay down and die. 
Instead, we ought to be constantly looking to the one, praising the one, honoring and glorifying the one who's alive again. Because that's what we're really looking forward to. Anybody been disappointed with this life because there's something you didn't get or didn't achieve? That'd be pretty much everybody. It's good to know this life is a vapor. And when this life is gone, then your life begins. And that life is forever. That life is eternal life. So whatever you have, whatever you accomplish, whatever you do in this lifetime, if it's not for the ever-living one, it's useless. It's pointless. The only things that are going to last into eternity is your faith in Christ, which Paul says is then traded in the heavenly economy for righteousness. So you're given spotless, eternal righteousness in exchange for your faith, and God is teaching you how to have faith in Christ and to love Christ And he's teaching you that through the difficulties and persecutions that you live through here in this life. So you should not be surprised when the difficulties come. Men are always going to do evil. You read that all the way back before the flood. I mean, God looked down on the planet and he saw that men's hearts were nothing but evil continually. That's what we read early in Genesis. That men's hearts were only evil all the time. As long as there's been human beings on the planet, they have always been evil. They've always been rebellious. They have always cursed God. But what I, I find interesting here, too, is that Jesus said, don't be afraid of the thing you're about to suffer. Now we know why. Behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison. Do you think the devil showed up? all red with a pitchfork and goat's hooves and, you know, looking like deviled ham, you know, that that character. Do you think he actually showed up and started tossing people in prison? No. It was soldiers who did that. It was religious people who did that. It was human beings who did that, and yet Jesus says, Just like Paul said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemies are ultimately not the other human beings. The human beings are being driven by an evil, wicked, satanic intent because it is ultimately the devil who is in charge of the wickedness of this world. And when wickedness happens against the people of God, it is ultimately that spiritual wickedness in high places that is bringing about the persecution and the difficulty in this life. It's really good to know as we walk through the course of this life that we've got Jesus Christ, the righteous one, on our side. Because life here gets tough. Okay, so what's this reference to 10 days? Jesus said you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. Well, as many commentaries as you'd like to read, you'll get that many different interpretations of the 10 days. Some of the commentators say that Christians had 10 days to renounce Christ, that when they were captured by the Roman authorities, that they were given 10 days before they were killed in order to renounce their faith in Christ. The problem with that interpretation is that we don't find it anywhere in history. It just is not in the history books anywhere. It's just people trying to interpret 
what the word says. The one that I find most satisfying, the understanding of 10 days that I find the most satisfying, is that it refers to the 10 Caesars who were going to come after Domitian, who were going to continue the persecution that Domitian started, so that the 10 days are 10 distinct time periods of persecution under 10 Roman emperors, which makes sense because historically that's kind of what happened. So that I find more satisfying than the idea that you get 10 days to, to renounce Christ. What we know for sure is Jesus put a limitation on it. He didn't say you're going to have endless, nonstop difficulty and persecution. Instead, he said, take heart, I'm sovereign, I'm in control, I have even designed how long this persecution is going to continue. Therefore, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid when they throw you into prison. Don't be afraid when they kill you. Don't be afraid when they persecute you. They've always done that to the people of God, and I have limited it to a distinct period of time. Because even though you're going through your difficulty, I'm still on my throne. I'm still sovereign. And I think that is the reason that Jesus said it's limited to 10 days. Verse 10, the second half of the verse says, so knowing all that, knowing everything that we've talked about this morning, knowing that Christ is the ever-living one, knowing that he's still on his throne, knowing that he is teaching you faith and love for Christ by the things that you go through, knowing all that, Jesus could then say, so be faithful unto death. Fear of death is what drives so many of our decisions. The whole world right now has succumbed to the latest governmental directives because we were told this will keep you from dying. So just do it because people are motivated by fear of death. Nothing motivates people faster than fear of death. Jesus takes the exact opposite approach and says, don't be afraid of death. Why? Because he's in charge of death. He's the one who has already introduced himself in John's description of him when he had the hair like wool and the eyes of fire and the feet of burnished brass. He's the one who has the keys to hell, to Hades, and to death. He's in charge of death. He's overcome death. Ultimately, at the end of the book of Revelation, he's going to conquer all his enemies, and the last enemy is death, is what we read. He's going to conquer all all of them and put away all of them and he's going to bring all of his to eternal life and so therefore he can say stay faithful stay faithful in your Christianity stay faithful though the world and the government may try to oppress and persecute you and may try to shut down your love for Christ and your understanding and your adherence to biblical principles Stay faithful. And by the way, I like the fact that John didn't say that. Paul didn't say that. Polycarp didn't say that. I didn't say that. Steve didn't say that. It comes from the authority of Jesus himself, the sovereign one who's in charge of everything, who knows the end from the beginning. That's the one who said, stay faithful. You know why he could say that? Because he knows a lot of stuff you don't know.
He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the glory you're headed toward. He knows the place he's prepared for you. He knows what the ultimate glorification of his church is. Therefore, he can say, be faithful. And that's a command that we certainly ought to follow, knowing who it is we are faithful to. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. Okay, now we have to remember, I'm not going to make it. Can I have 10 more minutes? Am I keeping anybody? If you just got to be somewhere, bye-bye now. But I'm going to give you the crown of life. Remember what Smyrna was built like architecturally. From a distance, it looked like a giant crown. Everything that Smyrna had to offer, all of its wealth, all of its majesty, that is not the kind of stuff we ought to pursue. What we ought to pursue is the crown of life. Then he uses this phrase where he says, I will give you this Stephanos. Now, remember that I told you there's this Olympiad stadium right there in Smyrna. They love their Olympiads. They love their games. And whoever won, whoever the governor or the official of the games was, would put a Stephanus crown on the winner. So the one who won was the one who worked hardest, the one who ran fastest or jumped highest, the one who put the most effort in was the one who would win and receive a crown. Everybody in Smyrna understood that. So Jesus says, be faithful until death, and even though you're impoverished, you're very rich, and you're going to receive this Stephanos, this victor's crown of life. They would understand what he was saying. 2 Timothy 4, Paul even talks about this Stephanos, this crown of life. He says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. That's Olympiad language. I ran the race. I ran as hard as I could. I ran like one who's trying to win. And I finished my race. And I've remained faithful. And now a prize awaits me. A Stephanos, a crown of righteousness. So Paul, Jesus, have this expectation that when you are faithful till death, the reward after that is that the ever-living one, the Son of God himself, is going to put a crown on your head that is your righteousness. Notice that it's granted to you. It's given to you. And it's everlasting life. Okay, look. I said a lot of stuff this morning. If you remember nothing else, track with me here. Look, you can have this stupid life and everything it offers. And you can be rich beyond your wildest dreams. And when it's over, you die. And when you die, you take none of it with you. And you stand before God, the eternal judge, and he judges you on the basis of your faithfulness to Christ. And all your wealth and your fame and your power 
doesn't help you at all. And every famous, powerful, wealthy man you can name in history is dead. And they were either raised up by the Prince of Life or they go to the second death. That's your option. Those are your choices. It's black and white. It's, it's just as clear as it can be. You either are competing in this life like an Olympian. You're either controlling your body, controlling your resources, living out this Christian life faithfully to Christ, and therefore you get a crown of everlasting life, or you're dead and you go to the second death and you die Again, and that's the last thing that Jesus said in verse 11. The one who hears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes, the one who stays faithful to the end, will not be hurt by the second death. The book of Revelation lays out a basic equation Actually, the New Testament lays out the the equation. It's not a mistake that Jesus calls your regeneration being born again. So you get born once when you get here on the planet. But then you get born again at some point in your life when you are regenerated and brought to spiritual life. So Christians get two births. The natural birth and the spiritual birth. Non-Christians get two deaths. The death of this life when your flesh stops working and you die, and then God himself condemns you to eternal death. Here, you want to see it? I didn't just make that up. Turn to the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 20, and this will wrap up our morning. Revelation 20, I'm going to start reading right at verse 1. As we continue to go through the book of Revelation, we're going to have to go back to this chapter a few times. So that leaves us plenty of opportunity to talk all the millennial stuff that's coming up. But for the moment, just look at the contrast between living and dead eternally. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss, and a great chain was in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or upon their hand. And they came to life again and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, the non-Christians, the unbelieving, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This resurrection of the church is the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one 
who has a part in the first resurrection, over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Look at verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead that were in them, and death and Hades, notice at the beginning, Jesus says, I have the keys to death and Hades. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were all judged, every one of them, according to their deeds, according to their works, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So there's your contrast. Jesus says, stay faithful to me to the end, and I'll give you eternal life. If you overcome this life and stay faithful to Christ till the end, eternal life is your lot. But to those who don't overcome, to those who oppose Jesus, to those who are rebellious in this lifetime, they are looking forward to certain damnation and the lake of fire. We don't even know what the lake of fire is. We can't even imagine what a lake of fire is. And yet God in his sovereignty invented something called the lake of fire. What we know is Jesus said it's a place where the worm never sleeps and where the fire is never quenched. It doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound like a vacation. It doesn't sound like anything you want to do. But God's ultimate judgment is coming. And Jesus says stay faithful and that second death can't touch you. You want that. Because it's coming. Here's a fact. You're dying. Eternity's coming. Where are you going to spend it? Stay faithful to Christ. That second death can't touch you. That is adequate inducement, I would think, to recognize that The trials, the difficulties, the persecutions of this life are designed purposefully by God for your good. All things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Even the persecutions of this life are designed to build up your faith, try your faith in the fire so that you have a greater love for God and a greater love for Christ so that when he is unveiled, you worship and praise and honor him and him alone because in this lifetime you stay true to him That is the message to Smyrna. I think that's the message to all churches. Got it? Got it. Hey, Erica, come here. Sorry, Steve, I'm calling an audible. Because I think this is what we should sing now. Give me an F.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.